This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello there, it's Jamila Jamel. Take a deep breath. Let your breath out slowly to the count of six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Do you feel better? Well, on my podcast, I Weigh, this month we'll be exploring ways to tackle mental health and feel better with guests like Simon Sinek from The Optimism Company, therapist Vienna Farron, comedian Neil Brennan, and many more. Listen to I Weigh wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. The year is 2015. And in this podcast, you will not notice anything out of the ordinary. Bat fight! (laughs) The movie, What We Do in the Shadows. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I am Paul Shear. I am a lover of movies and I am a lover of my co-host who is the amazing uh, film critic who often writes for the New York Times, Amy Nicholson. How are you, Amy? Hello. How are you? (laughs) I'm so excited that we are doing this series of, I'm going to call it like a pull yourself up by your bootstrap series. This is like a series of films that were made on a shoestring budget that fought to get into theaters and when they did they became part of the the culture like these part movies, of the zeitgeist this is a very interesting film because i haven't watched this in a, in a handful of years and i've forgotten how much i loved it and i also was surprised in doing the research this is a movie that only two people saw the script and those two people were the directors jermaine clement and taika watiti that's it and everybody else were allowed to find their character with guidance from the two of them. I'm excited to go back to this too, because I feel like this is really a pivot point for me in the careers of Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi. This is where I really mostly became aware of Taika. I'd I'd known about his film, Boy, hadn't paid that much attention to his career. Here is where I was really like, okay, who is that? And now it's like, you cannot avoid knowing who that is. And I came into this movie with a bunch of preconceptions about Jemaine Clement, which I'm ready to speak with you openly about and purge. Oh, wow. I'm very interested to hear about that. Uh, We'll also get into uh, the differences between the Olive Garden and Outback Steakhouse and the connection that this movie shares with Lord of the Rings. And it's uh, one that I did not know that I am very excited to talk about with you. But Amy, I think without any further ado, let's un. 
Spool it. The year is 2015, and once again, we've got two buddies who have been working together forever to get their careers off the ground. Their names are Jemaine Clement and Taika Waititi, and they've been friends and collaborators since college in Wellington in the mid-90s when they formed their first comedy troupe, So You're a Man. That acted good. Their next act did better. They splintered off and did their own things for a minute. More on that in a sec. And in 2005, they joined forces to make a short film called What We Do in the Shadows, which were interviews with some vampires. If you were an American who stumbled across that 2005 short in the years right after they made it, which was not easy, you'd be totally forgiven for being like, oh, I don't think I realized that those guys were friends. Totally forgivable, because in 2005, neither was that famous in America. Jemaine hit here first with the TV show Flight of the Concords, and then Taika directed him in this very awkward 2007 romance called Eagle vs. Shark, which I remember reviewing and hating. And then Jemaine was in a whole bunch of nonsense, Gentlemen Broncos, Dinner for Schmucks, Men in Black 3, and Taika was, at the time, the prestige indie guy. He directed a film called Boy that I remember the head of my film school loving. Like, we'd go to parties at his house and he would put it on. Uh, But Taika was honestly most recognized, if you knew him at all, for being nominated for an Oscar short in 2004. That's the year before Martin McDonough. And when Jeremy Irons called his name, he pretended to be asleep. Little terrorist, Ashvin Kumar. 7.35 in the morning, Macho Vigalondo. Two cars, one night, Taika Waititi and Ainsley Gardner. So then, in the grand tradition of the Evil Dead and El Mariachi, Jermaine and Taika decide to make their early film once again, and finally, the whole thing comes together. Their feature-length version of What We Do in the Shadows uses the same characters, a 379-year-old dandy, Viago, that's Taika, an 862-year-old Vlad, that's Jermaine, and a 183-year-old Deacon, that's their friend Johnny Brew, uh, a new vampire Nick, that's uh, Corey Gonzalez Macor, and it adds 8,000-year-old Peter, who is played by Ben Francham. Jermaine and Taika once more write and direct, although write is a loose word for a film that's mostly improv, about this gang of dudes and their buddies, Nick and Stu, hanging out in Wellington, trying to look cool, eat virgins, and figure out a chore chart for their house that will make every roommate pitch in to clean up all the blood. And dishes. What We Do in the Shadows played at Sundance 2014, and critics fell in love. On Rotten Tomatoes, it is still 96% fresh. I'm one of those critics who saw it at Sundance, and I have like just the clearest memory of leaving the theater laughing about this sandwich line. I think we drink virgin blood because it sounds cool. I think of it like this. If you were going to eat a sandwich, you would just enjoy it more if you knew no one had fucked it. It took forever for this movie to be released. It did not come out into theaters until February 13th, 2015, a full year later. And while it didn't make a ton, ton, ton of money, everybody who saw it, Loved it, including presumably the right people who then took Taika and turned Taika into Taika. So what was number one on the charts that weekend in 2015? Well, a major songwriter and producer now here getting the top credit for one of his own biggest hits. It was number one on the charts for 14 weeks. The song is about being too hot, as in Peter the Vampire is too hot when the sun sets him on fire. It's about making people believe in you by showing them who you are kind of like being vampires who are underground, but then they invite a documentary crew into their lives. It's about 
hitting the town on a Saturday night with your boys. And in the absolute best connection I could think of, the songwriter also wrote an earlier hit for the band Vampire Weekend. And the singer has a song on the Twilight soundtrack. It is Mark Ronson and Bruno Mars and Uptown Funk. Girl, sit your hallelujah. Cause Uptown Funk don't give it to you. Cause Uptown Funk don't give it to you. Cause Uptown Funk don't give it to you. Saturday night and we in the spot. Don't believe me, just watch. Wow. Amy, once again, <laughs> I tip my hat for that connection. Oh, I worked hard on that. <laughs> yeah, that was a big one. You really had to justify it there. Like you really backed up that thesis with a lot of a lot of research. And I appreciate all of that. Amy, I'm so excited to talk about this movie because not only is this a great comedy, but it also underlines this thing that we keep on seeing, which is comedies that come out that are well-reviewed, but not really seen. And they get this second life, this, I think, better life where you see it because your friend wants you to see it or your partner wants you to see it. Like it becomes this cultural cachet of, have you seen this? Oh, you need to see this. This will be your next favorite movie. And those to me are the most fun films. It's movies like Foot Fist Way. That's the first time I really saw Danny McBride or a movie like MacGruber, who I think a lot of people didn't see in the theater because they had this preconceived notion of what MacGruber was going to be. And then when they saw it, they're like, holy shit, this is the funniest fucking movie ever. Same thing for Popstar. Like, oh, what is this? Oh, it's a Justin Bieber movie. And then they see it and they love it. And I think this is where comedy thrives in the living rooms of your friend's house when they're forcing you to watch something and you trust them more than you trust any poster or any review. And this is a movie that obviously not only has success in a cult status, it is now a giant success because it has spun off a TV show with different characters. We'll get into that in a little bit, but I just love following these comedies because it makes me feel like you're in a little bit of a secret society at first, when you first find these movies. Yeah, that's exactly how this word felt to me. Like, when I went in to see this movie for the first time at that Sundance, I was pretty down on Jemaine Clement's whole thing, to be honest. Because, yeah, I mean, Gentleman Broncos, one of the worst movies I've ever seen. Eagle vs. Shark, again, loathed this movie. Fine in, in Men in Black 3, but I did not understand his deal. Like, I liked Flight of the Concords okay. But he also was like, to me, Jemaine Clement was this guy who was like famous in strange cult circles, terrible in big things. I remember he hosted like an art air guitar competition. And my friend was like a competitive air guitarist at the time. So we like had to go to this air guitar competition. And I thought his advice and Brett McKenzie's advice to the air guitarist was just unhelpful. I had all these like petty grudges. You know what I mean? And I like being aware of those moments because as a critic, you have to recognize your petty grudges in order to surpass them. And I really had a big grudge against this guy. <laughs> I want to get into a couple of things you said here. First of all, has your friend retired from playing the air guitar? I mean, I don't know if you can ever hang up your air guitar. And 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 what kind of advice would be helpful advice for the air guitar competition? By the way, <laughs> I know this is a real thing because when we were doing Human Giant, we were sent a script based on the air guitar competition like, oh, this would be a great human giant movie. We're like, no, it's a terrible idea. It's like a weird, it's fun to see, I guess, but 
it's a weird niche thing, but I love that you're mad at him for giving bad advice on how to do air guitar. (laughs) The petty grudges I hold against random people for things they have no idea. Very funny. That's a very bizarre one. There's a person in a popular TV show right now who is responsible for me breaking up with a boyfriend in 2008. She has no idea about this. It's just like so random. <laughs> but don't you think that this is more of a, a problem with Hollywood, which is Fight of the Concords comes out and it's great and people love him and they want to put him in things. And oftentimes these big budget movies are going to grab up the interesting, cool comedy people in the hopes that it will make their mainstream thing interesting and cool. And that's kind of what happens here. Men in Black 3, you couldn't say no to that, right? You'd have to do that. And and the same thing for Dinner for Schmucks. Like These are movies that on paper feel like the right move, but they also are bad movies. And they aren't bad movies because of Jermaine. Like Jermaine just happens to be in a bad movie. And that sometimes can like be the wave that pulls you out to see and we never see you again, right? Like it's it's this, you know, one one and done. Yeah. Like it happens, I think, so much to like comedians, especially from like New Zealand and Australia. I'm thinking about Rebel Wilson and how protective I am of Rebel Wilson. Mm. That like she shows up and she's so funny in Bridesmaids and then people throw her in things that aren't quite the right fit or they don't know what her comedy should be out here. And it turns into like, ha ha, Rebel Wilson falls down, goes boom. And I get so upset about that when I see that kind of comedy. And then people are like, I hate Rebel Wilson. She's annoying. And you're like, I don't think we ever got to see the full blossom of Rebel Wilson. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast. That's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. And I think that was going on here. Like, I can understand seeing Jemaine Clement rapping, rapping this beautiful hip-hop song on Flight of the Concords. They call me the hip-hopopotamus, flows that glow like phosphorus, popping off the top of this esophagus, rocking this metropolis. I'm not a large water-dwelling mammal. Where did you get that preposterous hypothesis? Did Steve tell you that perchance? Steve. And then being like, this guy's so cool, I'm going to put him in my movie. You're exactly right. But then when the movie sucks and Jemaine Clement has, let's just say like, one of the more recognizable faces that has ever been on a cinema screen. You know, you see his face and you're like, well, I'll never forget that face. Then you just, I like associated him with so much negativity for so long until I saw this movie. I get that. And I think you're right. Like we can turn on people very quickly. We love them and then we hate them. And unless you do something different that brings us back into the fold, you will forever be forgotten about. And this movie is kind of perfect because they're allowed to make it under the radar in the sense that they're making it in New Zealand. You know, they don't have to worry about getting any sort of financing and they're left to their own devices. I would even argue that they couldn't make this under 
DGA rules because it's so hard to direct as partners if you've directed individually in the DGA. So here they were actually able to combine, work together. And this was a really interesting film because it's improvised. It's an improvised mockumentary. They had, you know, hundreds of hours of footage. Uh, they had a script that no one saw. They would give everybody a brief outline of what they were going to do to keep it a little bit fresh. They knew the story of it. I, I think at one point they were saying they were going to release like all the hundreds of hours of footage online so you could edit your own version of it. But I know that when I first started out, I did this improvised paintball movie called Blackballed, and we did it the same way. We got really funny people. We shot it on weekends. We had uh, 150 hours of footage that we cut down to a tight 88 minutes. Um, <laughs> we won at uh, South by Southwest, the audience award. But there's something really interesting in this, and you can see why this movie is so good because to take over a hundred hours of improv and cut it down into a 90 minute film, that's really the crafting that I think both of these guys are so good at, whether it is, you know, Taika understanding this mix. And I think he does this really well. I think Taika has been an interesting character in the last couple of years with what he does. Cause he can do a big Marvel movie. He could do a small soccer film. He could do Jojo rabbit. Like, He's kind of moving all over the place, but I think the two of them together attacking this movie, there's some depth here. There's some heart. It's more heart than you would expect. But then on top of that, the effects are awesome. This is not just a movie of guys sitting around improvising. Like There are moments here, whether they turn into bats and fight in the street, whether they're flying around the house. And even though the flying is goofy, it's still impressive. Like This feels like a big budget movie then when you hear an improv movie it's a bunch of people in a room talking at each other and this has elements of that but it's so much bigger the gore the the fire they they really they really were able to like plus up what we know of a mockumentary and the special effects could be bad when they need to be i'm thinking about that scene where like they're running around and jermaine clement's face is just on a cat it's oh, so yeah. terrible because they're like well it Vlad's just bad lately at making himself into animals. So all the animals he's going to be are just terrible. You know, I've, I actually found it really interesting. I went back and watched the original short for the first time. I'd never seen it myself. Mm -hmm. And when I watched it, I was thinking like, oh, you can see how this movie, the feature length version of it is improv, but it's also like we've given ourselves nine years to figure out the joke. You know, like the sandwich joke that we played that is one of my favorite things on the planet. In the earlier version of it, you can feel like you, you see the proto-beginnings of the sandwich joke start to form. You know why virgins is why a, why a sandwich that someone hasn't already eaten. And it feels like Jermaine Clement had nine years to be like, how can I make this punchier? How can I make this funnier? And like mostly the characters are the same, but the really big change when you compare the short to the later, the later version is that Taika changes his character really drastically because he is still Viago, this dandy, but he plays it so differently in the past. In the past, he's kind of like, eh, he's like lazy, like vague, gen, uh, I, I can't even describe it. Here, just listen to his voice. I guess I'm the one who likes to keep the house looking good. You know, I don't think that just because 
you know, we cannot die. It means we shouldn't make an effort to keep up appearances, you know. And then in this, like, redo version, he's the one who radically shifts. He goes from playing, like, a character that's sort of disaffected, like, well, okay, he's fine, to a character who's just like, look at me. I'm so charming. I'm trying to be responsible. I'm the sweetheart. I'm always nervously smiling at the camera. It's sort of like watching Taika find Taika, because that is kind of Taika's thing today, being adorable. And it's like you see him figuring out that that's his brand. His brand is being adorable. Well, you know, he actually um, based that character on C-3PO. That was his, his as if, in a way, for this character, which I really love. And when you look at it through those eyes, you can kind of see those mannerisms of C-3PO. He does hold himself like C-3PO. Yeah, I mean, each of the characters in the movie are based on famous vampires, right? So you have, like, Peter, who's analogous to Count Orlok from Nosferatu. You have Deacon, who is more like David from The Lost Boys. Vladislav. I was thinking, like, Blade. Like, Deacon, like, Stephen Dorff. And then you also have Vladislav, which is, like, Gary Oldman's Dracula, which I think you see that that opening scene where they open the door and he's in that Francis Ford Coppola, yeah. In the red satin and writhing. And then Nick was based on the new vampires, like the Twilight vampires. Oh, right, because he keeps yelling out that he's Twilight. Exactly. Twilight! Shut up, Nick! You're not Twilight. It's your problem. You you are my problem. Telling the world that we are vampires. And I tell the whole world that you're an asshole now, though. Shut up! And then Viago, in addition to C-3PO, he is kind of based on Louis de Pointe de Lac from Interview of a Vampire. Um, so oh, it's oh, why didn't I see that? I love that movie so much. You know what? You know what? The short he's playing it like Brad Pitt's Louis because Brad Pitt's Louis sucks, and he's just like whatever. I'm a sad vampire. And then I think he adds the shading. Of happy C-3PO. And you know that C-3PO is my favorite Star Wars character. So I know. Yeah. So there you go. I mean, this is a perfect character right for you. Or I mean, right from the Tom uh, Cruise universe. But I will say that I think that those distinctions for the movie make it really interesting because while they all fit together perfectly, you have very strong types, right? They're not all friends from the same period. And they give themselves all these really interesting journeys. Um, and I think I was really connected to Taika's journey of like this love that he had, right? Like he, in many ways, has given himself the most heartfelt journey. Like this is the journey of someone who was in love, gave up on love, and then at the end finds love once again. And that reveal at the end that he, you know, makes this 90-year-old woman into a vampire who could spend the rest of his life with her is so kind of sweet and endearing. And I think that's what makes this movie work. I think that the Christopher Guest movies started to peter out for me in the sense that the actors are great, the characters are great, but it didn't seem like anything was really happening. I wasn't really emotionally invested in anything anymore. Like once you get to Best in Show, which has a ton of funny jokes, there's no real story there. There's like, there's an event and they're capturing people around an event. But this, I think, starts to bridge the gap into what modern documentary has become. I think you see that in American Vandal. I think, you know, this is the documentary as drama. Like, this this has more of a story to it. Not to say that that's never been done in doc, but I feel like when people were making mock docs, 
it was just here are funny characters doing testimonials and this becomes a lot more of a narrative feature i'm enjoying it some people freak out a bit about the age difference. Uh, they think, what's this 96-year-old lady doing with a guy four times her age? And, you know, I don't care. It they doesn't can... make any difference. No, they can call me cradle snatcher. Who cares? I decided to bite her, and we're going to be together forever. Wonderful. Yeah. You know, I hear that because I'll confess that I think Taika's character can be a little bit too... I think he smiles too much in this movie. But I would say that I like the arc that uh, Jemaine Clement's Vlad goes on. That like he, you know, his whole arc with like his ex-girlfriend, the beast, his egos, his finding his powers again. You're right. There is like this nice rise and fall in there. My memory of this film was always like, there's a bunch of great jokes. And then at the end, they go to a party, I guess, and everything falls apart. And like, I was really trying to hold on to the narrative tighter in this rewatch. And it is there. But but yeah, now that I think about it, in a lot of those mockumentary types, they're sort of like, this is your stock character who does this. This is your stock character who represents this kind of joke, this pratfall, blah, 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 blah. And if I do point at any character here, they are all changed by the end. And I appreciate that now that I think about it. Nick grows up a little bit. Deacon evolves a, a, a touch. There is change in here. But also at the same time, what I do think is important is like as 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 much as Taika is like sweet and mugging and I'm an adorable vampire he is also killing and eating people who seem pretty nice and they don't shy away from the fact that they are also mean and like when Taika calls his old um associate his old like helper his old minion and his old minion is like you said you'd make me a vampire and now I'm old he just hangs up on him and there's a cruelty there too and I think if it didn't have the cruelty I would find it too cloying well, yeah, these are vampires. They're out killing people, right? And I think they do a great job of not necessarily focusing on that. Like, you know that if they don't eat, they're going to die. So you assume that they're eating the entire time. But the movie isn't about, hey, we found this group of vampires. I'm going to see how they survive. It's, hey, we found this group of vampires and we're just following them as they live their lives. And it's much more real world than it is like we're in a secret society. We're just capturing, you know, their interactions with the werewolves that they think are terrible. And, you know, one of the things that they do to keep this movie going is they keep on, they keep on adding new information, right? Like when you start the film, you think you're going to be watching these four vampires as they prepare for this event, this once a year ball. But then once we get into their world, we understand their world, it immediately changes. And we are brought into this thing where a new vampire is brought in. And what is it like to be a new vampire? So we get to see that part of the story. And then once we get that, we get a human brought in, this character of Stu. And Stu is amazing. Stu Rutherford uh, not an actor, really. He's a part-time business analyst for a Wellington company. Uh, and he was hired for the film under the impression he'd be working on computers and he would play a small part in the film, right? He's, he's in the short, right? Yeah. He's in the short really briefly. He's kind of sitting at a table. It, it, he, I think part of it is like Stu himself was like, well, being an actor would be kind of fun. And the guys are like, never take acting classes. Don't take acting classes. We just want you to sit in this kitchen. We're not going to tell you what's going to happen. Just react to us. And his deadpan is like that becomes another story that we're following. And and again, it just continues 
to add more story. And this is, you know, all the way up until the reveal of like the beast. The beast is the guest of honor. And, you know, and we see this story that we obviously haven't heard up until this point. They know that that uh, Jermaine has had this battle with the beast and who is the beast. And we reveal it's his ex-girlfriend. And, you know, and that becomes like this climactic battle in the film. But at that point, you've almost forgotten about the ball. The ball isn't important anymore. Like the movie starts off with this premise of this is building up to the ball, but the ball becomes less and less important. And it really becomes a moment where all these characters and all the arcs that we've set up pay off, but not in the way that we were expecting them to pay off. So I really just think it is a movie that plays with our expectations more than we would expect in a straightforward documentary. But on top of that, I feel like maybe through improv, what they were able to find was, oh, this is a more interesting direction to go. Like they were able to go deeper into all these characters and find that mix because they cut together three versions of the movie. They had the more dramatic version. They had the joke centric version. And then they did one where they mashed them together. And this is kind of the mashed version of it. And I think that it is kind of great to have that much real estate to play with. And I often think that this is the way that when you look back at certain filmmakers, like a Woody Allen, like Woody Allen would shoot, you know, three quarters of his film and then edit it together and go, what's missing? And then go back in and shoot more and add more and, and then have a finished product. And now that obviously has become the way that we make all these Star Wars and Marvel films. It's like, well, we're going to shoot it and then we're going to realize what we're missing and then we're going to go back for about six weeks of reshoots, you know, like this idea that like it's it's not done until we see it all together. And I do think that that's something that as filming has gotten more expensive, but cheaper, you know, it's not film, it's digital, but movies can benefit and especially comedies can benefit from having a lot of footage and being able to let people go off on tangents because I think you'll find a richer and more interesting structure narratively than you would if you were just writing to get to the 90 pages and keep the plot simple because here they're able to like retcon a plot in a way. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, I feel like in that decade they had to work on it. They all probably grew up, got married. Some of them became dads. I think they got a lot sadder and they added stuff to this because like there, there isn't really much of a joke in the first one besides just the flat joke. There's not like much of a character arc in the short but here, it seems like they're driving at darker stories, more of a sadness, more of like ideas of like mortality, philosophies on life. It feels like there is a weight to this movie that there isn't in the short. There's a sadness. And I think they scaled back some of that sadness. Like if you go through some of the deleted footage, a lot of the deleted footage is funerals. Whenever somebody dies, they have a funeral. They have a funeral for Stu. Here's the funeral for Stu. Tonight, we commemorate Stu. Stu, we couldn't go to your human funeral because it's in the daytime and because there'll be a priest there and crucifixes and all that kind of stuff. But we have come here to rejoice in your memory. And those scenes are emotional. And I think it is, it's weird. I think this movie blurs sadness and awkwardness sometimes where like it's pitiful when they're awkward and then that kind of feels sad. And sometimes it goes a little too far for me, the pitiful, sad, awkward clumsiness of it all. Like mm -hmm. when they're trying to get ready to go out on the club 
and they can't time the way they say, you know, what is it, vampire style. Right. And voila, we are ready to go into town and party. Vampire, vampire style. Vampire style. That almost feels a little over the top to me. Although you and I are people who always have to try to coordinate saying unspooled at the same time when we know that it is difficult. It's very hard. It, 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 that's too much. But the idea that Nick, the new vampire, is not the brightest guy in the world, is not the most deep or intelligent guy in the world. And yet when he realizes he can never eat French fries again, he's so sad and upset. And the taking away of this little pleasure deeply resonates with me. The apricot. I can't eat solids now. Great. But I can't sunbathe. Can't watch daytime TV. I can if I... Oh, yeah, I guess I could. More, more than anything, just the chips. It's my favourite food. I can't eat chips. Because I don't... I hate... I'll say I'm over being a vampire. It's shit. So don't, don't believe the hype. And that, because like I feel like in most vampire movies, it's bigger. It's like, I'm going to sit here and talk about how, how tragic it is that my loved ones are aging and blah, 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 blah. But the idea that you could never eat a French fry again, also equally tragic. And I think that those moments underscore and actually help you understand these other vampires more because they've been there and they there is a dull sense to them. They, they, they're just living this life and... You know, this moment of there's that great line at the end when Stu gets killed, like that probably is the most dramatic moment of the movie. You get to see Nick really go through it like they this is somebody they actually really like. They like Stu and he and he's not only killed, but he's killed so ferociously. And right after they protected him and then he saved them. You're right. That monologue, that monologue yeah. right here, which is actually legitimately on the cusp of being emotional. You have to watch everyone die. Your mother and father, all your friends, sometimes brutal, like slipping and falling onto a giant spike or falling asleep in an autumn pile of leaves and having some of them block your windpipe or making the simple mistake of fashioning a mask out of crackers and being attacked by ducks, geese, Swans, all simply dying of old age. But even old age is brutal. Watching your friends grow old, they can't piss, and they say stupid things and their brains go and they can't remember anything. And then one day they can't even remember who you are. And I think that moment of seeing Stu die awakens an emotion and it sounds so funny that i'm saying this about this comedy this satire but it awakens an emotion that i think pushes all these vampires to care again in some way like whether it's jermaine reuniting with the beast whether it's and i think probably most importantly it's you know seeing taika finally make the move to approach this woman right because the entire film he's longing for her he didn't make the move and i think seeing Stu die is a reminder that like life is short even though it's not short for them but it does give them a reason to make a change to do something whether or not this could be a positive or something or not but it, it does get them out of their routine 
with the exception of Deacon, who I don't know really has as much of an arc as the other characters. They they all like rallied around one person. They all were affected by that loss. And obviously Peter is killed earlier and we see that, but there's something that's not as tragic about Peter, especially the way that he looks. Obviously he's like a, a full on creature, you know, and, uh, and it seems very violent, but also, <laughs> I mean that the makeup he's, it's so well done. Those teeth are terrible. Yeah. Those nails are so horrible. But it, I think that there is something that you, what we miss in that, like we get that they are upset that their friend has died, but you know, it's also kind of wiped away in the shame circle, like shame, shame, you know, they're running around nixing shame. It doesn't have that weight. It's a mundane movie. It's about the mon- the mundanities of life, but also how something that can tragic that can happen can push you in a different direction to actually live life. And maybe these characters weren't living life. And that's as deep as I'm going to go about this movie. But I do think that there is an element <laughs> of that here. I mean, there's an element of credibility for sure. Like, I mean, Taika and Jermaine were roommates at one point back in the 90s. You know, they were roommates when they were doing their whole comedy act. Like, their probably biggest one in Wellington was called The Humor Beasts. And they're, from what I could find of it online, there's not a lot of clips. A lot of The Humor Beasts just seems to be like putting on ridiculous 80s style tracksuits having on gigantic hair metal wigs and just making a joke of being an oversexed dumbass. Holy moly. How's it going, sexy, sexy, sexy Queenstown? Yeah. What a beautiful place. What a lot of beautiful ladies. That's right. Are you going beautiful? How are you? Just fine. Oh, you hear that? She's just fine. Oh, you're not just fine. You're super fine. And those are a fine pair of legs, you know what? They'll make a great necklace. <laughs> Ow! Rrr, you dog, you! That was really all the extent of the shtick I saw. There's also some bits where they kind of mime and are just weirdos. But at that time, they are roommates. So I feel like I, they're coming to this table being like, what are roommates going to be mad at each other about? They told me when I interviewed them for this movie at the time that they didn't do dishes, that what they did is they just painted circles on the table, ate their food in the circles, and then wiped the table clean. I should not believe that, but I like to pretend that I believe that. I love that, and that's insane. I mean, as a person <laughs> who has children, I can also attest that that's pretty much how it goes. Like, like they shouldn't have plates. I should just, because I'm cleaning up the floor and the table regardless at all points. So, you know, maybe it was, maybe it's there onto something. Yeah, maybe it works. Maybe that's like the next level of of cleanliness. If you turn a kitchen table into something more like a pool table and at the end of the meal, you wipe all your food into the pockets and then it's a garbage disposal. I like it. Look, Amy, let's get on that. Let's get on Kickstarter. By the way, this movie on Kickstarter, how you like that transition? You know, I wanted to talk to you about this because I remember, if I don't know if I donated to this or I just read about it, but, you know, in 2015, they went on Kickstarter to get this movie shown in the US. And I wanted to talk to you about the difference there because obviously it came out in Sundance. It's a kind of a hit. And then you said it took a while for it to get released here. But to get released in the States, they had to raise money, you know, and they raised about like uh like a little less than half a million dollars to bring it to the States. And I thought that was how does that even work? 
I look, I'm like, half a million sounds like a lot, but also not a lot. Well, look, I uh, I basically have pulled up their old Kickstarter page right here. And it says, on February the 13th, we will be releasing what we do in Shadows by ourselves without a studio distributor so we can share a film with you, the audience, directly. The film will open in New York and Los Angeles, but we want to take it further. We want to bring our film all across America, but that's expensive. There's posters, trailers, advertising, publicity. The list is endless. And we need something to project in every theater. We have put together a plan with some of the best independent film minds around to reach as many cities and towns as possible, but we cannot achieve our goal without your support, enthusiasm, and generosity. Please bring what we do in Shadows to a theater near you. So they really got this word out. Like they they were, there's never a world in which this could have even been a hit because they were just getting it to small theaters and hopefully getting people to show up. I need to know the dot, dot, dots between people seeing this movie and Taika becoming Taika. Because it's not that long after this that he gets his first giant Marvel movie. Well, but that, you know, to me, like, I remember Taika as a director, and I feel like that's where people are finding the next wave of talent. Like, that's what happened with El Mariachi. Like, you know, it's like, it, it is the people in the know are there. The people in the know are at the Landmark and at the Arclight R.I.P., you know, seeing these films. So, of course, he's going to get in there. It's like the same way with James Gunn. I mean, James Gunn, you know, it wasn't like he was making big movies and he pulled over, you know, Slither, you know, gets in there like, oh, the guy directed Slither is, you know, or, or the guy directed the Rain Wilson superhero movie, right? Like it was, he wasn't like a known name. It was like, oh, this guy is an interesting voice, an interesting director. Let's give him a chance at pitching something big. And I feel like I'm sure Taika fought for that and had a really interesting take on what it could be and has the experience, obviously. So he was able to, you know, win that gig. But I think that that's not absurd to think like, oh, they found him. I mean, this is a movie that has won awards or that had been, you know, it was in Sundance, South by Southwest, Berlin, Toronto. It uh, was the People's Choice Awards in Toronto. You know, Vanity Fair had already called it hilarious. Los Angeles Times said it was like one of the funniest films. Was that you? Uh, and uh, uh, <laughs> the best comedy of the year from The Guardian and a laugh out loud, funny uh, review from IndieWire. So this is a movie that was, you know, in that kind of small indie crowd. It had some attention. So I, I don't think it's... Right, but now I can't figure out why nobody would distribute it. It's a, it just seems like here's this great movie. Nobody will distribute it for them, but also have have a Marvel movie. But think about it like this. No one would distribute it for them in the theater. I'm sure they had offers to go to streaming or DVD or cable, and they didn't want that. And they probably held out. I mean, I remember when Ask Backwards a movie that June did uh, with Casey Wilson, like there are these like really cool indie distributors who know how to make going to movies an event. Kevin Smith does that too. It's like, I want my movie to be shown in theaters first. So they may have been offered a lot of things that didn't in involve theatrical distribution. And maybe that's because of accents, simply because of accents. And they're not well known enough to, to put all the PA behind because to launch a movie, that's at least, you got to think it's at least like 15 or 30 million is probably the base small level of promoting a movie. So you would never put that against a $1.6 million movie. It's not going to make that much. So I'm sure it was just a, a dying endeavor. I mean, whatever the case is, this makes me feel like you and I need to have a lot more respect for the short filmmakers who get nominated for the Oscars every year. Mm -hmm. 
Because if this is where Taika gets started, if this is where Martin McDonough gets started. Also, did you hear the names that were also called out in Taika's yeah. year? Andrea Arnold, she beats him. She did Fish Tank. She did American Honey. She does like Big Little Lies later. Nacho Vigalondo, a director that I totally love. He did a, some really great independent, like kind of like Spanish sci-fi films. Then he did Colossal with Anne Hathaway. Then now he's directing like episodes of Our Flag Meets Death, Means Death with Taika. Like to me, this does feel like a lesson. I don't actually like most of the nominated shorts usually, right. but I should try. I should try. Maybe the, maybe they've just changed how they nominate the shorts because I just feel like now they're also sentimental and do-goodery and luxury. Maybe maybe the short film committee is doing us all dirty. Well, I think sometimes too we talked about this like the short films like what gets nominated. It's tricky, you know. It's like I I think that there should be ways to see shorts. I I think if you go to South by you see a bunch of interesting shorts. They have a great short programs, but they're not prestigious. You know, they are these different things and you know there should be more room for this but this is always our argument like that they're they don't really make room for comedy or something that's maybe just candy a little bit like you know whether it's visually visually cool or you know it's got to have a little bit more what is it saying what does it mean you know yeah they're all vitamins yeah i mean that's why martin mcdonough winning for six shooter feels like the one-off because that movie is so dark if you've ever seen that short, it's bleak. It's bleak. It's bleaker than anything. And so that it won, mad respect to that movie. I think Taika's short was just sweet. I think it, it would fit in today. Well, I mean, I'm forgetting one. her name, but the woman who directed uh, Punisher, she directed a pretty, uh, like, I think Green Street. Oh, yeah, Alexia. Yes, she directed, like, I think Green Street Hooligans or something like that, which is kind of a cooler action. Like, it had, it. it wasn't like a... It wasn't a vitamin necessarily, but maybe every now and then one gets through. But it's also hard to find financing for a short film and then get it on that circuit. I was on a, I was in a Oscar, in a movie that was a short film that was like getting contention around Oscar, did not make it. But that's a whole level of work to even get it. You'd have to win a certain amount of festivals and you can get to get it in the nomination. It's hard. It's a lot of, a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of like, legwork to push all this stuff forward and i think that sometimes that like it's the tenacity that sometimes gets these things forward well then i will understand completely while jermaine clement is not making these shorts he's doing outback steakhouse commercials what i always come back to outback because they always have new dishes like the victoria's crown fillet a nice tenderloin topped with a horseradish crumb crust yeah that'll get you to come back you don't remember this line of Outback Steakhouse? Oh, they're all online. They're all a treat. I can't hear accents well enough to take a side on this conspiracy theory. Some people say that Jermaine, because he is from New Zealand and doing a steakhouse commercial for an Australian identified company. Is Outback Steakhouse even from Australia or do they just pretend that they are? I don't know. That's our next podcast series. Some people say that he's doing a lampoon of an Australian accent. Other people say he's not doing an accent at all and we just can't tell the difference with American ears. I'm an American who can't tell the difference. So I don't know. Well, come on, uh, Australians and New Zealanders. Get in here. Tell us what you're hearing. I would like to learn the difference. It's interesting that this movie has created a television series. Two television series because there's oh, right. also one... In Wellington, where they did a spinoff that was just about the cops called Wellington Paranormal. Yeah, we've got to get this girl to her caregivers. She's, look, she's really unwell. What's your name, love? Basil of the Unholy Realm. 
we've got B, I've got B, A. Razuel of the unholy realm. Okay. As members of the New Zealand Police Force, it's our job to offer support to those in need, and that takes the support and the respect of the community. Absolutely, it really does. Is that the unholy realm in High Tai Tai? Officer down. I've got an officer down. Officer back up. He's back up. That was a bit uncalled for. That stars the same two cops, and they were also, only one of them, I think, was an actor. No, neither of the cops were actually actors. The male cop became an actor, and the female cop was a kindergarten teacher. She taught Brett McKenzie's kids, and then they just dragged her in to play a cop in this movie, and then she had a TV show. Oh, my gosh. By the way, just so you know, Outback Steakhouse began, guess where? Kansas City. Okay. Close. It originated... Or I guess it's based in Tampa, Florida. It started back in 1988, but they've opened, I think, their first restaurants in Canada. And, and they closed, they opened nine, they closed nine. I am looking around to see where it all go, but I, where it all started. But it is an American company. It seems like it's an American company. It's not, it is not a Australian company. It did make itself uh, present in the UK, but also closed down in the UK. Uh and yeah, so now they are, you know, they, they've been, they've been running, running out of Tampa. I wonder what Australians think if they come to America and they go to an Outback Steakhouse. Oh, I'm sure it, they're furious. It, I mean, it's like, just like, but it's like yeah. all the Italians who go to Olive Garden. I mean, I remember going by an Olive Garden in France and thinking like, why would you ever, if you're in France, you're you're arguably even closer to Italy at this point. Like, why would you be going to a, a, a like a you know a chain restaurant? But I guess maybe there's something appealing to all these chains. I brought my kids to uh, an Olive Garden recently. They went bananas, and I was like, oh, I've been wasting my time. They like this. And by the way, it was a great meal. It was a great meal. I don't know why I was uh, shitting on it. No, I have an ex-boyfriend who once surprised me by organizing my birthday dinner at an Olive Garden. Didn't tell me. It. I showed up, and like ten of my friends were there. Half of them are too snobby to have like ever really wanted to set foot in an olive garden. One of them we still make fun of. She had the bartender create a cocktail for her at an olive garden. And then it turned it came up to the table and it was blue and she just said this won't do and sent it away and we have never let her live it down because that was the shittiest thing on the planet. Oh my god. <laughs> but also the most her and very very funny. I love that she this won't do. Uh This won't do. We have never seen her and not brought it up. <laughs> she she must regret it deeply. I hope she's been very nice to waiters going forward. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. But I think what we're finding in this, you know, in these last three films that we've talked about is perseverance and this idea that if you believe in something enough, it will eventually find an audience. Like like we said, like the audience supported this film or the American audience supported this film by helping it bring it here. It became one of the most pirated movies of 
that year, right? It's something that people wanted to see, but I think it just goes to show you that, you know, we've talked in the past a lot about, you know, whether it's Pauline Kale saying that Raiders of the Lost Ark is like the death of cinema. And then we're coming here to where it's like, well, we don't always know what people want to see. And I think that we are incredibly protective of, okay, well, I don't know how to package it. it like, and funny, it doesn't make a difference what the movie is anymore. It's like, how do you sell the movie? And that's a bummer. There's a thing I read online, you know, as we're barreling towards this potential writer's strike, you know, that now studios run, and I've read this for years, their scripts through an AI to say, how much money oh. do you think this movie will make? It's not even like, how many notes can I give you on it? It's like, how is this a profitable movie overseas? And comedy often is not a profitable movie. Horror is. Um, but this idea that like taste is slowly going away, like a real believer in it. And so you have to have people be the champions and whether that person is Stephen King is championing Sam Raimi, you know, whether it's, you know, the combined force of, I think Miramax and the Weinstein company at that point, like lifting up like Quentin Tarantino and, uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez, you know, to kind of give them this, this idea, like you, you need somebody with taste. And I think that the, uh, the argument you can make about television and streaming is it's analytic based. It's not based on gut. Man, I want to get analytics out of everything. I'm so tired of it. I'm tired of analytics in my, in my basketball. I'm tired of people taking pointless threes. I'm tired of all of this. Well, did you see what JJ Reddick said? Like, it was interesting. JJ Reddick had this quote the other day because Someone was saying like, oh, J.J. Reddick is, you know, was one of the best, you know, on the court. He was a plus this and that. And he's like, that's why you can't listen to analytics. He's like, I did a terrible job guarding him. Like it's yes, the analytics say that I am the best. I was not. The reason why we lost that series is because I couldn't guard him. Like and and there is this thing where it's like analytics are averages. There's not like the heart and soul of what we connect to. And Evil Dead and this are two franchises that have been living now for over decades. Like they, like they, they, and like, yes, there are these other giant ones that are produced by, you know, but even Star Wars, like when that came out, that was a small, you know, no one thought anything of it and it became this other thing, you know? I mean, what it says to me is that analytics are turning the studios into slow moving, lumbering beasts who are easily killed. Honestly, yeah. like it, it, what are our analytics helping things? No, because people are exhausted by the kind of movies that have been spun out by the AI. Right. They're AI approved, I guess I should say. And I think it's exposing the vulnerability of, of trusting on it too much because those analytics are getting people to spend $200 million on something that's not going to do well. That is the weird thing that we get into, which is I think that it's too complicated to have something that is a word of mouth hit because there's so much flying at us that if you don't grab our attention right away, it goes away. And you see the death of something that doesn't seem like you have to sell it on one thing and one thing only. Nick Cage is Dracula. Like, and if that doesn't get you into the theater, boom, it's gone. You know, it's like, and that movie is very fun, by the way. And I hope people, see you know, it. <laughs> I mean, if you looked at the Dungeons and Dragons honor among thieves campaign, the campaign was essentially like, Hey, 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 this doesn't suck. I know we think that you think it sucks, but it doesn't suck. Look at this. Look at all these great reviews. It was really like they were getting ahead of what people's perception of it was. 
And I think that actually is a success story for that film. It's made over $70 million at the time of this recording. Um, why do I know that right off the top of my head? I have no idea. But I do think that we're trying to game the system and instead of just letting people talk, but we don't have room for people to talk, you know, and people go, there's no more water cooler shows. It's like, well, because we're dumping all the episodes on one weekend and everything is out and you can't like, I just know that the best kind of television and you look at what we do in, in the shadows, a TV show, something that continues to build and, and, and is I think gotten more and more popular and, and who would have thought like, who would have thought that that would have, that this movie that barely could get released here in the States you know, without people donating money would now have that. So I, I just think it's an interesting argument to look at like, yeah, you know, where are we going to find our next one of these? Like, where are those voices? Because I think to your point, like, yes, they're slow lumbering beasts, but they also are, they're slow lumbering beasts that block the pathway to entry. Like, right. It's like, you know, if you, it's a bouncer, it's like, well, okay. It's like a rhinoceros in sleeping in front of a doorway there. Yeah. And it's like, well, I still, I'm trying to get into <laughs> this place, but if you won't let me, if you don't believe in me, I have yeah. to do it in this, like some weird subversive way, you know? And, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, it, it's a bummer to me. I think I'd be more bummed out about it if I felt like the rules were fixed mm -hmm. 10 years ago, I felt like the rules were fixed and I hated the rules and I was very bummed out all the time. Like basically when this movie came out now, you know what weirdly gives me hope that we're still figuring and scratching and hacking at the system is, sorry to bring it up for the 90th time, Love is Blind season four. Oh, come on, bring it. Because there's the rollout of this season that Netflix was doing where, you know, you got your clumps of episodes at the beginning, clump, 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 enough clumps to get you hooked. Then they space it out for like the grand climactic episode. And by the time they spaced it out for like the grand climactic, who's going to get married for a real episode? The swath of people in my life who know and care about it was wild, like different groups of people that I would did not think would be caring about a dating reality show on Netflix in its fourth, fourth season. The way they built it up just worked. And then please don't tell me anything about the live episode that they did. I haven't seen it yet because I was which was delayed. I heard that somebody texted me like it, it's glitching, but I appreciate that they're trying to do something new, which is like Netflix doing a live episode with so much furor around it. Next time it'll work out. They'll figure out the technology. And I think that's smart. As long as we're experimenting, I feel like we're putting fresh oxygen in the river and we're not going to get stagnant. Well, I hope so. I mean, you know, we need to find a way to support voices and not just shove them down and not just go, hey, if it was in, you know, it was in your banner for one week on Netflix or one day, and if it's not there anymore, it was a failure, you know, or the completion rate is not high enough. So it's a failure. You know, it's like people will find things and people want to find things. And this movie to me is, you know, obviously it's a $1.6 million movie and $1.6 million in New Zealand probably goes a lot farther than $1.6 million here in the States. Uh, you know, they had the help of not only their friends, they didn't, you know, but they also had the help of Weta. Did you know about this? That Taika kept on going into Weta, the, the studio that did all the special effects for Lord of the Rings and said, like, give me all your rejected prosthetics. Everything that you didn't use in the movies will take them. And that's how they got a lot of the looks for the characters in this movie. There are characters I thought, oh, that guy, that guy looks a little bit like something out of Lord of the Rings. And as I was uh, pleased to know that my Lord of the Rings eye was right because it was just deformed teeth and ears and, and anything that they had for orcs and elves and whatever they took. And they kind of makes these characters creepy because the fact that they don't look perfect actually is more interesting to me. Like the ball is a bunch of like 
they look a little they look a little mangy mangy yeah mangy which is i think it's actually kind of fun yeah they look like they've been around for hundreds of yeah. years they're mangy they're not shiny handsome perfect diamond skinned vampires like in twilight mangy and there's something to that to the imperfections of it that maybe is part of the secret of why this movie kind of hooks in your brain i will always be able to close my eyes and picture the face of jemaine clement on that cat it's so mm. terrible it's so terrible and it's so perfectly terrible that it is memorable if he was just a really good looking cat fine what who cares you know i don't care but the weirdness of it sticks out and i think if you ai smooth things you don't give people anything to hang on to like this movie lives in my brain so thoroughly every week because I quote this movie every week. You know what I quote every week? The part where Jermaine is like hunched over the computer and he's sour and he doesn't want to go to the party and he says this. Just leave me to do my dark bidding on the internet. What are you bidding on? I'm bidding on the table. The way I work that into my vocabulary constantly. Everything that my boyfriend and I do is dark. I'm going to do my dark scrolling. I'm going to do my dark duolingoing. That's all we talk about. And it's just this movie. And this movie, having those sticky moments that keep it fresh, that always keep it going up. Like, I'll even talk about it like this. Uh, you know, Bob Odenkirk had this quote, and I don't remember where it was from, and I'm going to be bastardizing it a little bit, but he talked about, like, SNL. He's like, they spend so much money on SNL to build these amazing sets, to do these amazing wigs. Uh, so everyone looks like, like these characters are portraying. He's like, but if it's funny, you don't care. He's like, that's why Mr. Show has like a little bit more of a janky look to it. He's like, put a tape mustache over your lip and that will be fine. Like people will go along with it. And I think that they're in comedy more than anything. It's like what we were talking about last time. Yes. About like making the audience go with you on the imagination. Yeah, we're there. Right. We're there. We're we're having fun. Like we're like if we're gonna go see a hundred million dollar movie, then we're gonna expect a certain thing. But like this is like going to see an indie band at like a small venue. Like, you know, we don't expect the giant stage show that you would get in an arena. And I think that that's okay. And, and, and I think that like, it's something that people forget and, you know, and, and we, when we chase all these things of like, are these characters likable? Are these, you know, we're, we're answering too many questions that people don't really care about because people just want to be invested. Like is Adam Sandler's character in uncut gems, a likable character? Not really, but we like him because we believe we understand his point of view. Right. We don't have to be like, he's likable. He's a fucking fuck up in every way. But like, you know, and I, I think that like what we're talking about is the polishing so much, too much polishing is going on. And I think it's giving us less of a, a product. And that's something that I think was so great about adult swim. And I think that that's something that FX still, I think strives to do give voice to like shows that don't have to be as clean as, as perfectly done. I will say, and I've gone hard on a lot of Taika's recent films, like the new Thor love and thunder, but I do appreciate witnessing from the outside, how loyal he is to the community that he built in these movies that like he, he founded this community with Jermaine. They've taken their friends with them in a lot of ways, like Deacon, you know, Johnny Brew who plays mm -hmm. Deacon. I didn't realize this until I cross-checked. He gave Deacon the best scene in Love and Thunder. The only really great scene in Love and Thunder is uh, Deacon right at the opening where he plays the god Rapu, the one who gets his head cut off by Christian Bale. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it. Yeah. Yeah. This scene, this scene. 
He thinks there's an eternal reward. <laughs> no, no, sorry. There's no eternal reward for you, dog. What we're celebrating. Yeah, that is Deacon under all of that makeup and that giant headdress. And I didn't realize that. But I'm very glad. I was glad to see Deacon cycle back into this universe. <laughs> Well, Amy, it seems like this movie was a hit, at least critically. People liked it. You were there. You saw it. I read those reviews earlier. I mean, were there people that didn't get this film? Or is this one of those rare examples where it it is too small to get anyone's ire up and 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 it's just exciting because it's there? Yeah, the, the variety review was like, it didn't love it, but it didn't really have good arguments about why it didn't. It just said... The anemic pick isn't remotely weird or witty enough for cult immortality. And it said that it feels eternal at 87 minutes. Uh, and by the time it drags its way to the unholy masquerade ball populated by hard partying vampires as well as zombies, it's the movie's final act of desperation. I feel like some of that world weariness in this review came from just the placement of this movie in our rise and fall relationship with vampires. When the short came out, I would call that a time of zombies and not vampires mm -hmm. and then twilight rises in like what 2008 yeah and so this feature comes out when we all have like twilight vampire werewolf fatigue and so it plays into that but i think there's a little bit of like we are so done hearing about vampires that maybe is the only thing i can think of that caused some sort of just like why enough i'm done with this already yeah and there's no accounting for not having a sense of humor no, that's true. And also, speaking of that change in culture, one of the things that Taika and Jermaine pointed out is like when they did that original short, there's a scene where like the vampires are walking through town. You know, it's night. They're going out trying to find some victims. They're wearing their frills and their ruffles. When you watch that short, the original, as they're walking through Wellington in 2005, everybody is yelling at them constantly. And it's not actors. It's just like drunk people on the street yelling really homophobic nonsense at them for the way that they're dressed. And they put that in the film. They just kept it in the film as like the vampires getting persecuted by the people of Wellington. They shot that scene again, nine years later, expecting that the same thing might happen. But nine years later, there'd been such a shift in, I guess, openness among in Wellington that nobody would yell homophobic stuff at them anymore. They had to actually ask people to yell homophobic things at them. And the one guy they got to do it didn't really want to. He was like super uncomfortable about it. And so just even seeing that shift in nine years in human culture. Well, it's so interesting, interesting you say that because I had a similar experience. When we were shooting Human Giant, we went out to Las Vegas to shoot this sequence with me and Aziz in the middle of the street. And we were wearing our Illusionators costumes, which were black wigs and like these track suits and these big necklaces. And the and that was probably in 2005. And all we were getting screamed at the entire time were the most aggressively homophobic things. And I was shocked because we were just had black wigs on and like, like we looked like Chris Angel. Like, and it was, we couldn't use a lot of the audio because it was so intense. Wow. And that's 2005 and that was Vegas. I, that's such an interesting thing. I always think about that moment. Like I was like, we were doing nothing. Like we weren't acting in any way besides walking down the street. And it was like a really eye-opening experience for me. I was like, holy shit. We're not even dressed that flamboyantly. God, 2005 is maybe the nadir. <laughs> it might be. <laughs> I hated that year. Uh, what do you think? You know, we, we don't, again, we don't do that many comedies, but is this a comedy that's important enough that you might want to send to space? I mean, there's a lot of great horror comedies. There's a, this is not meta either. This is not poking fun at vampires. I think it's like 
grounding vampires a little bit, taking some of the mystique out, but these are still dangerous, mysterious, uh, and effective vampires, right? Like, you know, to, to the extent that like, yes, Jermaine can put his face on a cat, uh, but Taika can still hypnotize the cops. They still are killing people. Like, it's not saying like, oh, vampires actually suck. I, I think it, there's something here. So I, I would take it out of the meta conversation, but, um, what do you think? Is this a movie that you would put on the side? Well, right now I wouldn't be willing to put it into space, but right now I would also say that it is, it remains my favorite Taika Waititi, Jemaine Clement film. And so seeing how they evolve as creative talents, if in 30 years we're like, yes, we must have one of their films to space and they have not done anything better than this, this would still be my pick. Rewatching this film, and I, I guess I, I really want to say this because I came in so hot on how I used to feel about Jemaine Clement. Rewatching this film again, I was like, I want more Jemaine Clement in my life right. now. I think his role is the best role in this. I think he's the funniest. I think he has, he's the vampire among everybody who can transition the most from like scary to sad to funny because this movie isn't that scary. You know, even when they're doing the chase scenes in it, mm -hmm. the music's not that scary. You're not trying to be scared. But I believe in his commitment to the vampire more than anybody else. He seems the most vampiric. Yeah. He's he's the greatest vampire character. And I found the Taika character too flat. Yeah, always the same expression, always the same smile. But very much team Jermaine. And so I just want to say that clearly and say I'm sorry for how I used to feel. Well, about I also would like to say that I'd like to see more Jermaine as a director. Yeah. And I like this collaboration. And I wonder if you know, working together that brought out a little bit of the best of both of them, you know, uh, and there's something really interesting about that. But it seems to me like Jermaine doesn't really want to direct that much or he or I don't know, like it doesn't seem it, it, I, I'm surprised that he hasn't done much more directing. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder what that is. Yeah. Interesting. Well, one time we'll have him on the show and we'll ask him. Mysterious, Mysterious questions. All right. Well, I have to agree with you as well. Like, I think this movie is really fun. I don't know if this is the defining mockumentary. You know, I don't know if this is the, like, you know, because like if I would all, I'd also, also look at this in the scope of like, this is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman. You know, there are so many mock docs out there. Is this you know, is this better than any of those? I, look, there's a lot that have come and gone. So I, I you know, I don't know. And that, that's a bigger conversation too. But I definitely think it's in a debate of like the funniest mockumentaries, film mockumentaries. You know, you put Borat in there as well. Like, I mean, with, I, I would I think, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I'd love to watch Borat again. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot out there. So I, I do think that while high on the, you know, high on the list. I don't know if it's it's the ultimate one of that. And I don't know if it's the ultimate, like, horror comedy either. Huh? I don't know. It's tricky. It's a tricky, this is a tricky argument to make here. It's very tricky. It's very tricky. But where do you think we should go from here? Well, it's interesting because we talked about horror. We talked about comedy. Uh, and, you know, I think we've done a lot of first-time films. But I'm wondering if it's worth, instead of going down the documentary route, we maybe go down the horror route a little bit more and maybe a little bit harder on the comedy uh, as well. And, and 
what if we finally do Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein? <gasps> oh, I'd be curious to watch that because I've been go- I've been watching History of the World Part Two, and I okay would love to watch this. I think that there's something interesting about that. Like, I think we could get down a mock doc rabbit hole, but I don't know if that will be as interesting as somebody who is really leaning into the space. We talked about Frankenstein on a previous episode. Maybe we'll re-release that one and you could listen to these back to back. But uh, I would be really curious to see, like, this is also a collaboration, an interesting collaboration, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder, you know, two different voices that only work together once. And I think you can make an argument that they created maybe best Mel Brooks movie. So that's an interesting partnership. So we're going partnerships, horror and comedy, building this ladder to a new, a new place. Um, I'm excited to see what we have in store. So listen to the trailer right here. It's coming from the deep, dark recesses of the mind of Mel Brooks. I love him. Young Frankenstein. Like, you hear me? Give my creation life. Sky means business. Starring Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. That's Frankenstein. Peter Boyle. As the monster. Whoa! Marty Feldman as Igor. My grandfather used to work for your grandfather. I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. Oh. <laughs> Boris Leachman as Frau Blucher. And Madeline Kahn as Elizabeth. What do you want to do to me? I'm not afraid of you. Kill the monster! You can get Young Frankenstein wherever you stream your movies. Well, Amy, until next week, but a big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, our EPs, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP, Molly Reynolds, our theme song by Michael Cassidy, our fan art by Kim Troxall. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and follow us on Apple and also on Amazon. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and you can talk about all these movies on the Paul Shear Discord. Just go to discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com slash unspooled, but you can also get your very own deck of unspooled playing cards, which are absolutely gorgeous, all designed by Kim Troxell at podswag.com. Just find the unspooled show and you'll see it right there. You can hear past episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test on Stitcher Premium and for the official API, that's the Paul and Amy Institute list of our favorite films that we've ever done from the show. You can head on over to unspooledpod.com. <laughs>